Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we examine the tension between conservation and development in a rapidly changing Singapore. I interview one of our contributors about the clash between pseudoscience and LGBT rights in a new Malaysia. And we speak to local journalists about the curtailment of their freedom in West Papua. As an ever-changing city-state where land is at a premium, it's routine to see landmarks disappear in Singapore. The cityscape has changed again and again, from kampong settlements to high-rise buildings to glass and steel skyscrapers. But concern is growing among some Singaporeans that the relentless march towards development and redevelopment is eroding the country's architectural heritage, undermining Singaporeans' connection to their own history. Kirsten Han pays a visit to a modernist building in danger of being sold and demolished. It's a quiet Friday afternoon at Golden Mile Complex in Singapore. Here, the shops and restaurants are simple and old-fashioned, a far cry from the shiny new shopping malls scattered throughout the city-state. A short distance from Singapore's downtown core, this 16-storey building was completed in 1973 and is known for its stepped terrace design. With shops, offices and residential units, it's a pioneer of the mixed-use development in Singapore. But the days of Golden Mile Complex might be numbered. In August 2018, over 80% of the owners agreed to put the building up for sale. It's not alone in this respect. Pearl Bank Apartments, an iconic horseshoe-shaped building perched atop a hill, was sold to a developer earlier this year. People's Park Complex, which has towered over Chinatown since 1972, might also be sold. In a city that's constantly changing, the fate of these buildings have prompted concerns that Singapore is losing a part of its architectural heritage. For Chua Ai Lin of the Singapore Heritage Society, this could mean losing a part of the nation's history. They're historically important because they're from that phase in the early 70s, the first sale of sites program, which transformed the city centre from old shop houses into a modern cityscape. So as an urban form, they were groundbreaking and the shopping centre with the atrium that's so familiar to us now and which is replicated all over Southeast Asia, it really starts with People's Park Complex and Golden Mile Complex. Pragmatism is a much-touted value in the island republic. Singaporeans are often told that progress and urbanisation trumps sentimental value. Several much-loved landmarks have already fallen victim to redevelopment, such as the old National Library building, which was demolished in 2004 to make way for a tunnel that eases road traffic. Modernisation and development were also at the heart of the design and construction of Golden Mile Complex. The building's architect, Taking Soon, explains. We took the opportunity to then think about you know, what should Asian cities be like in the future? Uh, bearing in mind, of course, that uh, at that time, Asian cities were, were kind of a jumble of shop houses and, and slums and shanty towns all around. Traffic jams, uh, pollution, right, congestion, lawlessness, and so on. 
So, you know, we saw ourselves as uh, modernizers and uh, we imagined uh, a new kind of urban environment which, which would be multifunction, multifunction um, with, with, with shopping, with workplaces, with uh, entertainment and with, with uh, residential on top in, in the kind of compact form. Um, and that uh, we, will, we will be able to avoid the, the kind of a street level congestion and pollution that, that was endemic. So, so Golden Mile was an actual realization of that, that idea. Today, Golden Mile Complex is a favourite haunt of Singapore's Thai migrant worker community. On the lower levels of the building, one can buy fresh fruits and vegetables, or enjoy authentic Thai food. Many of the businesses here have been running for years. While the old-timers say they enjoy the community that's grown, there's a sense of resignation over the building's future. Susan So has been working at a travel agency in Golden Mile Complex for almost 40 years. It would be a bit sad, if, but what to do? Correct, it's so long already. Uh, of course, we all not so bad, but other people will be worse than us. Those that stays here, you know, they are longer than us. But yeah. now, you, you know, they have to move. Singapore prides itself on an ultra-modern cityscape, projecting an image of constant renewal and rejuvenation. It's part of a carefully cultivated image of a wealthy, successful city, attractive to businesses and visitors alike. At 45 years old, Golden Mile Complex is falling into disrepair, making it an easy target for detractors. Back in 2006, then-nominated Member of Parliament Ivan Peng described the building as a vertical slum. Others complained that Golden Mile was an eyesore. It's true that Golden Mile Complex is now old and in need of repair. The cost of such retrofitting might discourage owners from opting for conservation. Some degree of dilapidation is happening, right? So uh, there's a lot of uh, disincentive to, to repair it and it costs a lot of money, right? And also there's another problem. The ability for people to, to kind of agree to, to do things together is not very... Uh, not very strong. The, the kind of democracy that we have in Singapore is a highly individualistic one, right? Everybody calculates his own self-interest. Uh, and in, in the culture itself, it is that, that self-interest is always expressed in monetary terms. In an effort to raise awareness of the value of Singapore's modernist buildings, the Heritage Society released a position paper last month entitled Too Young to Die giving new lease of life to Singapore's modernist icons. The paper seeks to educate the public on the importance of architectural heritage. It also offers potential routes to conservation, such as encouraging private developers to invest in extensive repairs. Actually, for these three buildings, because the maintenance issue, or rather lack of maintenance, has been going on for so long, and it's really they require quite intensive uh, rehabilitation, Actually, an on-block sale to a single developer may be the solution to, to retrofitting them, to rehabilitating. So if, if they're sold off to a single developer, enough incentive has to be given to the developer such that they know that they can still make money um, whilst paying for the retrofitting of and, and, and repair of these buildings.
The paper suggests that incentives could include the government offering empty or undeveloped sites adjacent to the buildings to developers. Granting a building heritage status could also boost its market value. A group of architects have started a petition to give Golden Mile Complex and People's Park Complex conservation status. But Troy acknowledges that it's an uphill battle, particularly with limited public support. I think the awareness is, is generally pretty low. Um, even with our national monuments, um, national landmarks, um, awareness amongst the general population is very low. Um, so it's, it becomes even more difficult with a modernist building like this because people aren't used to thinking of modernist buildings as heritage. As you said, they think of a, an old shop house. Tay mentions another factor which had previously nudged the government to preserve buildings, tourism revenue. In the 1980s, the government found that lackluster tourism figures had to do with the country's cityscape, which lacked historical and cultural attractions for visitors. So the government took that to heart and said, OK, then we have to preserve these uh, old shop houses in Chinatown and Little India and all that because it's good for money, money-making, right? Tourism. Despite its popularity with the Thai migrant community, it's unlikely the government will consider Golden Mile Complex a tourist attraction worth saving. Tay says he has mixed feelings about the potential sale of Golden Mile Complex, but he isn't counting on it being conserved anytime soon. I realise there, there is a campaign going on by architects to, 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 to save Golden Mile. I, I'm not involved in that at all, and neither did they ever consult me about it. But, you know, I, I, I applaud their efforts, but I'm not hopeful at all. Discussions around how to balance new developments and heritage conservation in Singapore will continue. For activists, there's a long road ahead when it comes to raising public awareness of the importance of preserving post-independence architecture. But for Golden Mile Complex, it might already be too late. That report was brought to you by Kirsten Han in Singapore. Last month, Samantha Chia wrote a story on anti-LGBT research in Malaysia for New Narrative. This type of pseudoscience makes homophobic rhetoric mainstream, giving prejudice a veneer of academic credibility in a country where there are still plenty of misconceptions about the LGBT community. I spoke to Samantha over the phone about the state of LGBT rights and whether things have changed under the new Pakatan Harapan government. So, Samantha, thanks for agreeing to this interview. And you know, thank you for a terrific article. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for picking it up. I um, really enjoyed writing it. Could you tell us how you came to be interested in this topic and how you came to write the article? Yeah, so I was I actually met um, Alicia Isharuddin, who is featured in the article. And we were just kind of speaking on the topic of a separate story I was working on. And around the t same time, this issue of University Science Islam Malaysia's LGBT Academy was kind of floating around in the atmosphere the, the, around the same time. And what Alicia and I were talking about was kind of this push where you're beginning to see academic um, institutions 
uh, pushing kind of like pseudoscience for the most part. It got me really interested in how that kind of plays out in terms of LGBT science because in Malaysia, you actually see a lot of other institutions like the Ministry of Health. You see um, not just University Science Islam Malaysia, but UIA, a few other institutions kind of pushing these ideas. And so um, I kind of took it upon myself to contact Dr. Rafida and maybe discuss with her why exactly her institution was needed and what exactly was the science that they were pushing because obviously um, in mainstream media we often hear ish- how LGBT identity and LGBT bodies are discussed um, and often they're medicalized so things like they've got mental health issues they all need medicine they are constantly um, fighting like their bodies are not quite what they need they need to get surgery they need hormones a lot of this kind of language is being used around LGBT identity and L- this LGBT academy kind of took on that role and took on that um, that discussion and kind of put it to the in the middle of their research agenda um, and that's kind of how I started this um, question of, you know, why is it that these academies are so interested in looking and researching LGBT identity when actually very little, um, there's actually very little precedent in Malaysia for this kind of research. But, you know, why is there this uh, broader movement to sort of turn uh, LGBTQ studies uh, into this sort of science or pseudoscience? You know, is there a broader agenda behind it or is it really just uh, a small group of people who are um, homophobic? I think it's quite difficult to extricate this movement to um, scientify LGBT identities from the fact that in Malaysia over the last, maybe you could say the last decade, you're really beginning to see a very strong empowerment of the ultra um, extremist um, ends of the religious spectrum here. So, of course, um, we can't forget that the past administration, pre-Pakatan Harapan now, the Najib administration really financially empowered the Department of Islamic Development in Malaysia, JAKIM. And Jakim created this program, which we can speak about later, um, Project Mukayam, which really set the template for how um, LGBT science in a lot of these institutions would get carried out. But basically, when these ultra-Orthodox um, corners of the Islamic of Islam of Islamic people, I guess in Malaysia, when they became financially empowered, you really began to see this push and this um, need to marginalize some corners of society in order to empower their corners. I mean, it's classic oppression, right? You you find a scapegoat, you find a way to turn society against them. And in Malaysia, I think what they've really what's been really powerful for them is by using the language of science around these people, you take this issue away from the kind of woo-woo religious um, extremist corners where it's just the bumpkins in the, in the kampung who really under, who believe this into, you know, you take it into the mainstream, you take it to people who, um, who can now say, oh, look, there is actually now science to back this up. Right, so you're saying this is part of a broader movement really at increasing the influence of a certain strand of extremist Islam rather than targeted against LGBTQ uh, people per se, right? Even though, of course, they it, it appears they have a moral opposition or some sort of uh, position against LGBTQ people, but the broader agenda is political. Oh, for sure. I think especially in the new Pakatan Harapan era, 
you are actually beginning to see a lot of the now opposition BN corners kind of firing up the use of this L- these LGBT issues. You're actually beginning to see a lot more um, hate crimes being committed right now because these opposition corners are kind of firing up their base in order to ensure that their support is their support remains and it's actually causing a lot of harm at the moment. What is the situation on the ground right now? Um, how do you feel that things have changed then in the last you know decade or so? There are two things here, right? So there's maybe the pre-Pakatan Harapan and the post-Pakatan Harapan because I think you can see quite a significant um, change um, here. So I guess pre-Pakatan Harapan, um, you really... I mean, my piece, I mentioned that kind of post-2012, after sexual, the sexual Mudeka kind of campaigns were kind of um, banned, you begin to see a real push by the religious forces to kind of target individualized LGBT communities. A lot of them faced, um, a lot of them began campaigns to um, change gender markers. They want, um, a lot of them looked for um, things like getting access to healthcare, access to kind of um, the ability kind of to get public service, which is very tied up in how your identity is built, right? Because if you want to be identified as a woman, if you're a trans person and you are looking to identify as a woman rather than a man, changing the gender marker becomes increasingly difficult. I mean, pre, pre-2009-ish, it, was like, it wasn't something that was much talked about. But I think as 20, post-2012, you really begin to see a societal pushback against it. So you really began to see this kind of push against the LGBT community very actively um, empowering a lot of religious figures to speak out against LGBT communities. You saw more and more of these um, individuals being able to enter educational spheres to run programming. So like in my piece, um, I talk a lot about how these individual Islamic teachers actually become authorities in these programs. So there was one where it was like Isla- uh, LGBT bara uh, Masyarakat, which basically means the LGBT community are cancers of society. But the speakers were not scientists. They were actually somebody with a degree in Islamic finance. Um, and they always use somebody who has just converted from being queer to indicate that you can change, you can make a difference. So you actually begin, you begin to see a proliferation of these programs. So this is kind of the, the, the atmosphere on the ground where it's very, very anti-LGBT to even come out. It's very dangerous. You still had some enclaves in kind of more urban areas of Malaysia, like Kuala Lumpur, where you had some gay clubs, some um, communities that were quite strong and continuing to protest. But for the large part, you actually begin to see um, a very, very pervasive anti-LGBT sentiment on the ground. There's a new government in power. And uh, I understand Jakim is supposed to be... It's, it's having its power severely reduced. Um, mm. Is this... Do you see any then hope for change? Has anything changed yet? And do you see any hope for change in the future? So I think with regards to Jakim, it's a little bit hard to say exactly how much their power has been curtailed. Because... Perhaps uh, the budget is coming up very soon. We're going to probably see the budget tabled in November. So it's a bit hard to say how much money is actually going to be reallocated into the department, whether it's going to get swallowed. I mean, news is coming up a little bit slowly from this new government. But Jakim spokespeople have been speaking out at the end of the day. Jakim is still... um, is still um, empowering a lot of this this anti-LGBT discussion. But I think if we just for... I think in Malaysia in particular, I think this is um, something that Malaysians kind of understand a little bit, that um, Jakim may be kind of the overarching umbrella that we hear a lot from and that gets a lot of flack um, in the more liberal spaces in Malaysia. 
I think we also forget that each state also has their own um, Islamic council. So like in the case of Malaysia, Jabatan Agama Islam Selangor, um, it is a council that governs just Selangor's um, Islamic affairs. And I think we're actually beginning to see some states are actually much more conservative than other states. But at the same time, on the issue of LGBT rights, they're uniformly conservative. So um, recently... I know that we have a new government, but we are actually beginning to see a, a really huge spike in hate crime and anti-LGBT sentiment amongst the different states. You know, we're really beginning to see a really large spat of hate crime against LGBT community under this administration. And I, large, and I think a lot of activist communities lay this at the feet of the government's um, lack of response to these issues it's not just the conservative corners of malaysia it's not just the opposition it's not just past it is this government you know our deputy prime minister wan aziza whom i think a lot of people place their hopes on to help push for a more progressive vision of the future act came out and said you know the idea of malaysia an islamic country is is completely antithetical to lgbt identity and we cannot promote this kind of um, stance You've had very few MPs come out and stand up like, for the LGBT community. And as much as you've had a lot of MPs kind of capitulate on like their liberal stances. I mean, in Malaysia, there is no liberal corner. But those people who had once stood next to LGBT activists, who once hoped, who once banked on their support in order to rile up their own bases, have now turned their backs on them. Thank you very much, Samantha. And thank you for an excellent article. And uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. Oh, thank you so much, PJ. I really appreciate um, you giving me the time to time to talk about this with you. That was an interview with Samantha Chia. Her story can be found on newnarrative.com in English, Bahasa Indonesia, and Bahasa Malaysia. Indonesia is often described as one of the more democratic countries in Southeast Asia, but the reality in Papua can be very different. The Indonesian government maintains strict control over the province and has denied foreign journalists and rights monitors access to the area. Fabriana Ferdows takes a look at the difficulties Papuan journalists face when covering important local stories. Abed Yu, a Papuan journalist, was attacked by the Indonesian police last month. He had been covering a debate between local election candidates as a journalist in Nabire, Papua province. He kept his camera rolling as police officers started beating up people in the audience. A police officer came up to him and grabbed his camera. They also grabbed him by the neck, strangling him. His glasses fell off and broke into pieces. Di belakang saya lihat. Behind me, I saw an audience member enter the room. Then the authorities hit him. Then, because I saw this happen, my instinct as a journalist suddenly took over. I took out my phone to record what was happening. After I started recording, that was when I got attacked. Then, after that, the military police officer saw that I was recording, and he tried to grab my phone, twice. But I insisted on taking it back from him. I said, I'm a journalist. You can see my ID card. After that, because there were lots of other people around, the third time he tried to grab my phone, he had so many people with him, and I was alone, so I couldn't do anything. So they managed to take my phone from me. That was Abed in his office in July this year, recounting his experience. 
Baik, Oke, bro. Kamu lagi sibuk apa? Di kantor, nyantai. Nyantai doang. Papua was absorbed into Indonesia in 1969 following a controversial referendum where a small number of tribal elders were forced by Indonesian security force to vote to join Indonesia. Jakarta maintains tight control over the region. Foreign journalists and rights monitors are regularly barred from the province. Any activism or advocacy for independence is heavily suppressed. Violence against journalists in Papua is also a long-standing issue. According to the Indonesian Alliance for Independent Journalists, there have been at least 65 cases of violence and intimidation against journalists in Papua and West Papua since 2012. Abed says the police often mistake him as a member of pro-independence movement, such as the West Papua National Committee. Abed's experience this year wasn't the first time he had been intimidated by law enforcement. It happened while covering a protest in 2015 It's like my case in 2015, when the Catholic clergy marched to demand that the government deal with the blood Paniai case in front of the Abepura Catholic Church. At that time, the police dispersed the protesters very roughly. They even pulled on the robes, which are called vestments. But actually, that's forbidden. People who are not in the clergy can't touch, let alone pull, the robes like they did that day. For us Catholics, that is sacred. At the time, I was taking photos, and then my camera was taken and the data erased. All the pictures, all my photographs from that day. That's freedom of the press here in Papua. Ardi Bayage is a Papuan journalist based in a remote highline of Yahukimo. While covering a pro-independence rally in Jayapula in 2016, Ardi was arrested alongside protester. Police paid no attention to his press credential. I was taking pictures and felt brave enough to go to the front. A police officer came up to me and suddenly started hitting me. He strangled my neck. I told him I was a journalist and showed him my press card. He put my clothes and brought me to the police station. Ardi was interrogated for two hours. The authorities refused to believe that he was a journalist. He was beaten in custody and all his were to erase. But Ardi is also quick to point out that such violence isn't the only obstacle to journalism in Papua. Indonesia's President Jokowi has claimed that Papua is open to foreign journalists, but Palim Kim, Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch Asia Division, says that foreign journalists attempting to report from Papua and West Papua have faced blacklisting and visa denials. Just last month, Belinda Lopez, a PhD candidate in Indonesian studies, was denied entry to Papua. Belinda said she was detained at the airport in Bali. Authorities told her she was an, on a government blacklist. She had previously been deported from Papua in 2016 in suspicion of being reporter. She was a student either at the time. Under such circumstances, Papuan journalists find themselves walking a lonely path. Uh, As I said before, we welcome Jokowi's wish to have freedom of the press here. I don't know why it still has to be so closed off for journalists, 
and for freedom of the press for journalists from outside of Indonesia. But with these limitations in place, we have more courage to say that we are indigenous journalists from Papua, who are brave enough to speak out about the wishes of the people here. That was Fabriana Ferdows reporting from West Papua. And that's it for this episode. Be sure to tune in next week to New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. Check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa! 